in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 3. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, nearer the front, uh, you'll find it between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Little, little book of four chapters. While you're turning to Ruth chapter 3, I want you to know that not this coming Wednesday, but a week from this Wednesday, so Wednesday the 27th, we're going to gather together at 6 p.m. right over in the fellowship hall for the finance committee and the building committee to, to present to us where we're sitting as a church, what we're looking at financially, what we're looking at as building moving forward. So we want you to know all of those things so that you can be informed, know how you can pray, and know what to expect moving forward. So that is Wednesday the 27th, 6 p.m., right over in the fellowship hall. Chapter 2 of Ruth ends with Ruth returning home from working in the field of Boaz and telling her mother, her mother-in-law, Naomi, the story of what happened to her that day. And Naomi responds to her, he's not just one of our relatives, he's one of our redeemers. And that brings us to chapter 3, and I'm going to have you be seated because I know we just sat down. No amens? It's fine. I'm not offended. So here's what the word of the Lord tells us moving forward. He's not one of our relatives only. He's one of our redeemers. And chapter 3 begins with these words. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back, to, uh, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. 
She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would settle matters in our heart today. That, Lord, you would take your word by your spirit. You would honor your son, Jesus, and your sons and daughters that are here today. Lord, we need to be reminded of who you are. We need to be reminded that you are God and you are Savior. You are King and Lord and Redeemer. That you are powerful and you are good and you are at work. Lord, as, as of now, we walk by faith. We walk by faith believing that you are God and your promises are true. And that everything that is happening here is happening because you are both allowing it and redeeming it for your good purposes. We don't walk by sight because clearly it doesn't look this way so often. It looks like we are out of control as a nation, as a people. We can look at ourselves sometimes and feel like we, 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 the things we want to do, we don't do. The things we don't want to do, we keep on doing. And so, Lord, we proclaim with Paul, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a Savior that saves us from our sin, saves us from our strife and our troubles, that will one day return and gather his people to be with you forever. Lord, what an incredible living hope we have this morning. So may we trust you. May we obey you. May we walk in joy of our salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here this morning who are just feeling beaten down by living in a fallen world, that Lord, you would strengthen them and sustain them and give them hope. If there are any here this morning who have never met your son Jesus, they've never seen him for the Savior that he is, never trusted in him, may today be the day of their salvation where the angels in heaven rejoice. Lord, we're here to sing and to pray, to preach and to listen like we do every Sunday. But we ask that you would move among us mightily this morning. We pray these things because we know you listen, and you hear, and you work. And we know that your son, Jesus, is interceding for us even right now. So it's, we, it's in his name that we come to you. Amen. I want to read to you a story from Reader's Digest of 1948. Some of you have no idea what a Reader's Digest is. It's, it comes on paper. And you read it. it. Does it still exist? Does it? Okay. Well, there you go. Well, this one's old. From 1948, I, I warn you, I haven't been able to read this story without kind of tearing up yet. But there's a first time for everything, so let's see what we got. Marcel Sternberger, a photographer, was a creature of habit. He used to take the 909 Long Island Railroad to Woodside every morning but on the morning of January 10th, 1948, he didn't do it. He decided to go and visit a sickly friend who was dying. He wanted to pay him a visit because he knew he wouldn't be around that much longer. As a result, Marcel hopped on a different train, a train that he had never ridden before. 
As he got on, another man got up hurriedly to leave, and this left a vacant seat, which Marcel managed to get. Sitting next to him was a man who was reading a Hungarian newspaper. Marcel Sternberger, being of Hungarian descent himself, eventually struck up a conversation with the fellow. He asked the stranger what he was doing in New York City, and the man replied, I'm looking for my wife. What do you mean you're looking for your wife? The stranger then said, well, my wife and I used to live in Debrecen in Hungary. During the war, I was taken away and made to work in the Ukraine burying the German dead. In time, I managed to escape and run back to freedom. When I returned home, I found that my wife had also been taken by the Nazis. One of the neighbors said they thought she had been taken to Auschwitz and therefore she would have been killed in the gas ovens. Someone else told him that they thought the Americans had arrived in time to save some of the prisoners and that they had taken some of them to America. His wife might have been among, uh, among those that were rescued, so he said, by a long shot, I'm hoping my wife is here. Marcel Sternberger kept listening to this story, and the more he listened, the more familiar the account sounded to him. And he asked, what is your wife's name? The stranger said, my wife's name is Maria. My last name is Paskin. It's Maria Paskin. Well, Sternberger took out his wallet and found a dog-eared piece of paper, and as he looked down, he saw the name Maria Paskin with a telephone number. He had met the lady at a party some time back, and she had shared with him the same story that he had just heard. For some reason, he made a note of her name and number. Marcel then said, look, I want to do something for you. What is your name? He said, my name is Bella Paskin. Bella, get off with me at the next station. So as they got off the train, Marcel went over to the phone and called the number on the dog-eared piece of paper. After many, many rings, a feeble voice answered the phone. Marcel asked if he was speaking to Maria Paskin, and she said that he was. He then went on to say, Maria, my name is Marcel Sternberger. We met some weeks ago, and she said she remembered him. And he said, can you tell me what your husband's name is? Rather shocked, the lady answered, my husband's name is Bella Paskin. Can you tell me a little bit more about him? Again, the two stories were identical, Sternberger said. Just a moment, I think you're about to witness one of the greatest miracles you will ever see. Then as Marcel held on to the receiver, he called Bella Paskin into the booth, and he said, would you please speak to this person? In about 10 seconds or so, Bella's expression changed. His look was beyond description. He then started to scream as tears came down his face, Maria, Maria, Maria. Marcel Sternberger took him away from the telephone and held a taxi. He was going to go with his new friend to be a part of the moment when he said, you know what, that's too sacred for me. So he put Bella Paskin into the cab. He paid the taxi driver and he told him where to take him. And he sent him on a reunion of his dreams. What an incredible story. Ruth chapter 3 starts with this. He's a redeemer. And amazing. We, we've made it to chapter 3. We haven't even discussed what this means. What does it mean that Boaz is not only a relative, he's a redeemer? In Israel... And we would read about this if we were to turn back to Deuteronomy 25. If a married man dies without having children, it was the task of his unmarried brother to take the widow as his wife and to have kids. And those kids were there to take on and carry on the name and the bloodline of the dead brother. This was called the Leverite Law, the brother law, essentially, so when Naomi in chapter 2 is talking to Ruth saying, go home, go home, 
You don't need to come with me. What am I going to do? Have sons today that are going to grow up and become your husband? That's what she's talking about. This Leverite law that is meant to take brothers and marry them to their sister-in-law so that their family line can continue. What she's saying is, look, that would take forever. That's not going to happen. You can't wait. However, there's more to it than that. If a brother was not available, which in this case, both Malon and Kilion had died, right? So there was no brother left. That's when the law of the kinsman redeemer comes in. That in God's law in Israel, and this is still true today, family was meant to take care of family. Even today in the Bible, even in the New Testament, you read that anyone who does not take care of their own family is worse than an unbeliever. That Christians are to care not only for one another and their church family, but for their family, seeking their good. Well, with the kinsman redeemer, if there was no brother, then the nearest unmarried relative was to take the widow as his own wife and was to be her provider, her protector, her redeemer out of her trouble as a widow. That's where this kinsman redeemer comes in. So here we have Naomi leaving a field, or Ruth leaving a field to come back to Naomi. And Naomi says he's not just a relative, he's a redeemer. What do we see happening? We saw that God providentially takes Ruth and leads her to the field that belongs to Boaz. It's not just for food, it's for her redemption. When she comes home, she tells Naomi that she was in the field today of a man named Boaz. And Naomi responds in the only way she can. May he be blessed by the Lord. The Lord whose kindness has not forsaken us. He's a close relative. He's near to us. He's an unmarried man. He's one of our redeemers. She's saying more than just thank God for the food. She's looking at everything that has happened so far and saying, God is at work. God is doing something. The God I thought had turned against me and had dealt with me in a bitter hand, he's working for me. And this is the backdrop to what Naomi tells Ruth to do in chapter 3. Shall I not seek rest for you? Should I not be active seeking security for you, my daughter? Is not Boaz our relative? Let me tell you what you need to do. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight. He's going to be working at the threshing floor. So here's what you need to do. You need to wash yourself. Get clean. Anoint yourself with perfumes and with oils. And you need to put on your cloak. And you need to go down to the threshing floor. Don't let them know you're there. But just watch. Just watch them. And after he's eaten and after he's drank and after he's he lied down, then I want you to go and I want you to uncover his feet and I want you to lie down at his feet and then he will tell you what to do. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, everything that you've said, I will do. So she goes down to the threshing floor and she waits. Now Boaz would have been working to thresh wheat and barley what they would have done is this. They would have taken the sheaves of wheat and the sheaves of barley. They'd have brought them back to this big threshing floor, this big stone tablet, essentially. They'd have broken them up, crushed them. And then what they would have needed to do was separate the wheat from the chaff. So if you've ever heard that term in the Bible, the wheat and the chaff, this is what they would have done. The wheat was heavier than the chaff. 
So they would take it after they'd broken it all up and they would just throw it up in the air and the wind would take off the chaff because it was too, it was too light. It, was, it, it would blow away and the wheat would fall back clean back down to the ground. They would gather the wheat and suddenly it had been threshed. Suddenly it had been cleaned out. Boaz would have been doing that. A bearded man would have taken the day to take wheat and dust and chaff and thrown it up in the air and let it just fall down. You get in the picture? A few years ago, I, I bought a paint sprayer. The first thing I painted was a ceiling. And when I got done, I took my goggles off, and it was the one thing on me, not bright white. Like when you think of what he was doing, picture what this would have looked like. It's a messy job. I'm not man enough to grow a beard, but if I were, I'm sure it would have had wheat and chaff stuck in it. This was not a romantic situation. It's not when you want to go on a date. He'd been working all day. The chaff, the wheat would have stuck in his beard. It would have stuck in his sweat. It would have stuck in his arm hair and all over him. The day's done, so he grabs a meal. He grabs a drink. And when he's done with dinner and his heart was merry, he went down to the end of the heap of grain. You've been following this story? The heap of grain. How long had it been since he'd had a heap of grain? The famine had come 10 years. Thank God for a heap of grain. And he went to sleep. And verse 7 tells us that she comes to him softly. And she uncovers his feet and she lays down right there at him. Now remember, he'd been working hard all day. So for you feet people, you can be disgusted right now. About midnight, something startles him. He rolls over and he sees something he's not used to. There's a woman laying at his feet. And he says what you would say in many situations when you're woken up in the middle of the night. Who are you? What is happening? And she answers him, I am Ruth, your servant. Now I want us to stop right there. Because if you've heard this story before, you'll hear people say, and you'll often hear pastors say, this right here was spicy. You ever heard that? This was sensual. They'll say things like that all the time. This right here, she was seeking to allure him. Let me explain that. That is 21st century people reading their garbage into a 3,000-year-old text. This wasn't seduction. This wasn't sensual. This was none of that. Look what she says next. Who are you? What are you doing? And she says, spread your wings over your servant because you are a redeemer. She quotes back to him what he said to her in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, he comes to the field that he owns and he sees this woman out there working. He says, who is that? 
And they say, that is Ruth. That's the Moabitess who came back with Naomi. And so he walks up to her and he says, look, may the Lord bless you. I've heard about you. I've heard of all you've done, how you left your father and your mother and you came to a land, you came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He said that to her, and now she's saying it back to him. What is she doing to him? Seduction? No. She's saying, you're a redeemer. She's uncovered his feet, and she's laid out down at them, and she's saying to him, will you cover me? Will you cover me with your wings? Will you, Boaz, become my protector and my redeemer, my provider? Essentially, this is just a girl standing before a guy saying, will you love me? And yes, I did just quote Notting Hill. And Boaz responds, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this kindness, this last kindness greater than the first and that you haven't gone after young men, whether rich or poor. You come after me. This is a man who would have been seasoned a little bit. He was getting a little older in age. My daughter, now, don't fear. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, but there's a redeemer nearer than I, so remain here tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, that's great. But if not, I will do it. I will do it. So lie down and rest. So what's the answer to her question? Absolutely. Absolutely I will redeem you. But, now don't miss this about Boaz. We've read a few times and we've made the point. This is a man who is a man of integrity and honor. Look how he answers this. Absolutely I will redeem you. But, there's a redeemer that is nearer than I. Now, remember what we said about the kinsman redeemer. The nearest unmarried male relative is to take the widow as his own wife. And so Boaz is saying, acting in integrity, I would love to do that. But there is a nearer relative than I. Let us go check with him. Let us make sure that he is good. Let us make sure that he does not want to claim this. And if he doesn't, I will happily do it. Either way... Consider yourself redeemed. Oh, what great news for this woman. But he says something more about Ruth, and I just want to kind of double-click on this a little bit. Another thing you hear often about Ruth is, she must have been beautiful. You ever heard that? She must have been beautiful. The way he notices her in the field. The way he helps her. The way he comes alongside of her. The way he's so thrilled to be able to say, yes, I will redeem you. I will make you mine, no problem at all. But when we say that, we're doing the same thing. We're seeing this text through our, 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 our everyday lens now, the lens of our culture. Because what we mean by that is she must have had an outward appearance that was really attractive. But here's the truth. We're never told how she looks. Never once. But we are told how others saw her. There's a difference. We're never told how she looks. We're told how others saw her. How did they see her? 
as the one who left it all to care for her mother-in-law, as the one who took shelter under the wing of the one true God. They saw how hard she worked. She wasn't lazy. She saw that she, they saw that she cared well for people. They saw that she was humble. She says, why have I found favor in your sight, a foreigner? She was strong. She carried 22 liters of barley. She doesn't seem to be a complainer at all. Never once do we see her complaining about her lot in life or her loss. She wasn't bitter. She was hopeful. She was loyal. She was obedient when her mother-in-law said, hey, go do this. Even though it sounds weird to us, she did it. She went. She trusted the Lord even in the action she took this very evening. Why do I point this all out? Because I want to make this clear. Ruth was beautiful. Just possibly not in the way that you and I are thinking. She was beautiful and everybody knew it. I mean, even Boaz says, look, all of my fellow townsmen, they know about you. But he says this, they know you are a worthy woman. You ever spent time actually in Proverbs 31? What is an excellent wife? What is an excellent woman? And it never talks about how she looks. Not once. It speaks of her character, her work, her strength, how she uses her words, and how she uses her time. It never once speaks of her outward appearance. Ladies, hear this, and then I want to speak to the men for a moment. We've talked about this, right? But we are prone to forget, aren't we? Ladies, by all means, pursue beauty. Chase it. Go after it. Just define it the way the Bible does. As we saw in 1 Peter, he says, don't let your adorning be merely external. Let it be here. Pursue a beauty that God recognizes as beauty. We spend so much time on outward appearance. And God says, I don't look at that. I don't see that. That's not what we value. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? Heart. By all means, be those women that pursue and value beauty. Just define it rightly. And men, value beauty. But value it in the way the Bible does. Lead your wives and your daughters to know what beauty is and to know how to go after it. And lead yourself and lead your boys, your young men to say, Hey, listen, let me tell you what true beauty is. Let me tell you what you need to be looking for. She was beautiful. She was beautiful the way the Bible defines beauty. She was a worthy woman. And she comes to Boaz, and Boaz grants her request. Don't fear. You will be redeemed. So before the sun goes up, she goes home. Before all the men start waking up and seeing all, the, all that's happened, she goes home. But before she does, Boaz says, hold out your cloak. And he takes six measures of barley and he puts it on her. And she goes home to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law says to her, how'd it go? And she tells her all that Boaz had done for her. He even said, I shouldn't come back to you empty-handed. So what do we see there? Boaz is trying to get in good with mother-in-law. No. 
Boaz is acting in practice what he said he was going to be. He said, I will care for you, so he's caring for her. I will protect you, so he's protecting her. I will provide for you, so he's providing for her. And Naomi responds, knowing that Boaz is a man of honor, don't fear, don't worry, just wait. Because he will settle this matter today. And that's the end of chapter 3. Now understand something. God worked here. God brought redemption to the house of Naomi and Ruth. What does it mean that he will marry her? It means that for them, they don't have to fear where is their food going to come from? Where is their shelter going to come from? Where is their protection going to come from? They were in a dangerous spot of being widows, of not working, of having this place where they needed someone to provide for them. And Boaz says to them, don't fear. I've got you. I will redeem you. Now, we do this thing in our life regularly where we look for what God is doing. And when we do that, what we mean is you're looking at a situation, you're looking at your own circumstances, and you say, what is that one thing God is doing? I'm trying to figure this out. What's, what's he doing? I heard a pastor once, John Piper, say, God isn't doing one thing. God is doing millions of things. He's doing millions of things you and I could never see. That he's, he's working in millions of ways in Moab. He's working in millions of ways in Bethlehem. He's working in millions of ways in Ruth and in Naomi and in Boaz. Ruth and Naomi had to fight their fears and their doubts and their bitterness at the death of husbands, at the loneliness of life, at what they had to look forward to as the life of a widow. And more than likely... There were nights at this very same threshing floor when the famine had come and the crops weren't growing where Boaz paced that threshing floor and said, God, what are you doing? What are we going to eat? We have nothing. Are you at work? Have you left? He probably had nights of singleness sleeping right there where he wondered if he would ever find a wife. He was up in age. He was getting up there, and yet he was unmarried. Why? Well, then the harvest comes, and then a family returns, and then one day a woman shows up in his field. He's longing for a wife, and she's in desperate need of a redeemer. Friends, the story of Ruth tells us that God is at work in millions of ways in order to accomplish his good purposes for his people in order to provide, in order to protect, in order to, to, to come over and shelter those who find their peace and their place under his wings. Don't doubt for a second that it's true in this story, and don't doubt for a second that it's true in your life if you have found shelter in him. This isn't, this isn't just a story. It's not just a love story. It's not just a story of how God raised up a redeemer to save these two widows. This redeemer is pointing us to another redeemer, isn't it? It's not just these two women who were in desperate need of redemption, of being set free from the dangers they were in. It's a story of us, isn't it? But this is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. When it describes who we were, it says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. 
that you, by your nature, by the passions of your flesh that you were living in, that you were carrying out the sinful desires of your heart, of your bodies, of your mind, and because of that, we're under the wrath of God. The Bible's diagnosis for humanity is this. By your sin, you are separated from a holy God, and judgment is coming. Make no mistake, we were the enemies of God, and yet, this merciful God sends a redeemer. His son, Jesus Christ, puts on flesh and becomes like us, becomes a kinsman, so that we can be redeemed from our slavery to sin and its punishment. And we're set free from that. We're redeemed by that, by his life, his death, and resurrection. So if I were to ask you the question, what is it that Jesus has done? He's come to save you by giving his life for yours. And how are you saved? You're saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. By coming to him, not with hands full, not with resumes, not with arguments about why you are so worthy he should save you. You come to him in full surrender, nothing to give, empty hands. You fall at his feet in faith and you ask him to spread his wings over you because there's nowhere else to go. And when you come to him in faith, he says this, I will surely redeem you. So friends, if you've never done that, if you're even kind of new to this church thing or you're just kind of here checking it out, well, it's great to have you. You're not sitting among a people that are good and have it all together. You're sitting among a people who, who hope that by our life and by our lips, by our words and by our actions, we can point you to the God who saves. If you don't know Jesus, if you have questions, come find me after the service. I would love to have that conversation with you. But I hope that this is true, that this morning you recognize your sin you recognize that Jesus is your redeemer and you recognize that if you will call on him in faith, he will forgive you. He will save you. He will make you his and his alone forever and ever and ever. And as, as incredible as that is, there's, there's more. I, I told you that God is doing millions of things in your life that you can look around sometime and your head actually spins with all that is going on. Good and bad, difficult or light, there's so much. And God says to those who love him, who have been called by him, I am working all of it for your good. That every single bit of it I am using, that millions of things are coming together for your ultimate good and your salvation. And not a single thing that happens to you, be it in Moab or in Bethlehem, be it during famine or in feast. It could even be on a, on a train in New York City. Everything that is happening to you is being orchestrated together for your redemption. Everything. Even that thing you think of when I say everything. Yes, even that. Listen, you can trust God because he's sovereign. And this sort of thing is not above him. You can trust God because he loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die and rise again to save you. You can trust him because he's faithful and his promises are true. I, I want to tell you one last thing, and, and I, I'll, 
I tell you this to encourage you, and I ask you to be praying for this as well. My, my oldest brother, and he doesn't watch this anyway, so I'm going to tell you a story. We'll see. My oldest brother and his wife are not believers. They live up in Seattle, Washington, essentially. I've prayed for them for decades. I've shared the gospel with them multiple times. Well, over the last year, he's gotten sick, like really sick. Like, sick enough to where they have now sold their home, they've sold most all of their possessions because they're moving across country to a hospital that they think they, that can help. And so here, I think in the next week or so, they are leaving Seattle to drive cross country because the doctors in Seattle who can't figure out what's wrong and can't help him say, we think the Cleveland Clinic can help you. So they're moving from Seattle to Cleveland well, my, my sister-in-law's family is in Cleveland. And so as they are working their way back, my sister-in-law's mom, follow that, my sister-in-law's mom was at the edge of her driveway in Cleveland just talking to her neighbor, and she's just telling her neighbor this story. So my, my, my daughter's moving here. They're moving from Seattle to Cleveland. Husband's like really sick. And they're hoping they can get in the Cleveland clinic, and they're hoping they can do all these sort of things. And the neighbor just says to her, you know, I work at Cleveland Clinic, right? Well, no, I didn't know that. Well, what's wrong with him? Well, he's got sarcoidosis, just rampant, just ravaging his body. She goes, I work in the sarcoidosis clinic. And she says, well, they're hoping to see this doctor right here. She goes, that's the doctor I work for. I said, tell them, give me their name, their number, send me their charts, I'll get them in next week. To which my unbelieving sister-in-law looks and says, the Lord is going before us. The Lord is paving the way. The Lord is preparing this so that we can go there. What do you think? God is at work in millions and millions of ways. Don't buy into the lie that his hand is turned against you, that he's dealt bitterly, because he's doing something abundantly more than all we could ever hope for or imagine. That's the kind of redeemer he is. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Then we're going to have a time of invitation. If you want to pray, if you want to come down and talk to me, I'll be here for a few moments. If you want to find me after the service, let's do that. But let's respond to the word and the goodness and the promise of the Lord through prayer and then through singing together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are a God who works. We, we, we think of you sometimes as if you're so far off, but you are near to us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are ordaining and orchestrating all things for the good of your people, that all things are being used for our good. God, I pray we would have eyes to see it. I pray we would have eyes to look for it, that a mind that thinks in those terms that our God is near and he is at work through every circumstance. Lord, we repent of the fact that we don't think of you this way. May we see you rightly. May we think of you rightly. May we believe you rightly. May we obey you and trust you rightly. God, what an incredible grace that would be if you would do that in us. So may it be done, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.